G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today we're going into a lot of the questions getting asked on the Perth Property Investment Facebook group. I'm choosing some of the juicy ones. I'm going to go into a few scenarios on, you know, whether you buy for growth versus cash flow, how do new properties and established fit into that, how I think about the trade-offs of each property types you might be looking at when buying. I'm then going to go deeper into some research tips where you can get data, how to look at short-term and long-term data, how it fits together to make a selection criteria. I think it's going to be really valuable for people to hear my take on that. And then finally, we're going to go into rental freezes and rental caps and what could be ahead and whether it's actually going to make me even think about selling or whether I'm worried about it at all. So let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. Well, let's dive straight into the first question, shall we? Someone is writing here. I'm just curious on opinions. No wrong answers. I'm looking at two properties side by side. Both are on approximately 350 square meters. Property A is a 1980s three by one, 80 to 90 square meters of living. Got an attached carport. Internal's been updated recently. New bathroom, kitchen, flooring and paint. It's got only a four by five meter private courtyard with a decent front yard and it was appraised at $500 per week. It has sold for $420,000. So at $500 a week, that's a 6.2% rental yield and I'm working out here. He's weighing it up against a property B, which is vacant land and he's looking to build a the house package on it with a four by two by double garage that would be 150 160 square meters with a builder and it's likely to come out costing a total of 500k so a very similar area apparently and the estimated rental return on the house and land package which is option B, is $600 a week or 6.2% rental yield. So expecting the same rental yield, but having to spend 500-odd K versus 420K for a similar area, apparently. And if both blocks are 350 square metres, then both are likely to be either subdivided, because full blocks would be 600 to 700 square metres. So he's obviously looking at infill for the house and land package option. He goes on to say that, uh, that he knows there's a stigma about building, but buildings returning to more normal levels, build times becoming more reasonable. Which option would you go with? And here is my answer. Well, before you go asking others about which option they'd go with, someone's answer should really be dependent, and, and I'm suggesting what you should consider in, in weighing these options up yourself is how does it fit within your overall plan for your portfolio? Because when you're clear on your overall plan, it's a lot easier to decide if a purchase fits into that or not. 
And generally speaking, most investors are going to be better off growing their asset base first, getting a decent size asset base, and then switching more towards income later. But as we've found when we've gone deep inside some other people's situations, we had Charlie Valor on the podcast a few episodes ago. Check out his uh, story on being a borderless investor. He focused more on cash flow and his reasons were that his, his job or business had risk and he wanted to de-risk his situation, so he leaned more towards cash flow. Likewise, if you were looking to get out of your job sooner you and replace cash flow sooner and you've got more modest goals for your cash flow, you may choose to focus on cash flow sooner as well. So having that larger plan is going to really dictate where you sit on the types of properties you purchase, whether they lean more towards cash flow or capital growth, and it's going to make the selection a lot easier. And any investor looking at this in the Facebook group is going to say different things depending on where they sit on that spectrum, whether they're consciously choosing the outcome they want or not. And keep in mind, we've all got different biases that lead us. There's the cash flow camp and there's the capital growth camp. I'm not in either camp. I'm really in the build a plan camp. <laughs> so you know what you're actually trying to achieve. So does it fit the plan or not for you is the question. And in this example above, if you were buying for growth, instead of buying an established property at 420k and getting the 6.2% yield, I would take the whole budget of 500k and buy the best established property I could with a proven history of performance. And when you buy an established property, the beauty of that is that it allows you to look back at how it has grown in the past and have more evidence to base your decision on, which is the whole philosophy that we use in our buyer's agency and our trifecta criteria for selection of a property. You want to look back at how it's performed in the past. And while that's no guarantee of the future, what we typically find that with an overall return on a property, as we've mentioned, it's made up of growth and an income component. So capital growth that you get in the price, income that you get from the rent. And it's typical that over the long term, the overall return on properties tends to come out to being around 10% total on average per year from both growth and rent. He said the rental yield is expected to be 6.2%. For building a new house and for the established house and yes both of them are on subdivided blocks so in both cases the greater building component is what is leading to there being a higher expected rental return and in accordingly i would generally expect the average growth rate to be lesser and you're going to get a lower growth rate on a subdivided block versus a typical block in a suburb, all things considered. Unless perhaps you can look back at the history of how that established property has performed. And if it has performed above average, then maybe that would sway you to looking at it for your purchase. But what I instead would do with spending the whole budget on an established property, if you're aiming for growth, I'd buy at the 500k budget that he does have and can spend. I would look to then expect the rental yield to typically be more five, five and a half percent. And the growth, my growth expectations for that purchase would be at least five percent then. So I'd be hoping to and expecting to get more of my total return 
as growth. See there, I'm expecting 5% versus probably 4% for the subdivided property um, in both the case of doing a house and land package or in buying a subdivided older property in, in his both of his cases that he's given. And so when I look at buying an asset for 500k, if I received a 1% better growth capital growth rate on average per year over 30 years, that's going to give me an extra 539,000. That's what 1% extra per year in growth rate does on 5% versus 4%. Now, if we took the re extra rental yield along the way instead, so we took our our 6% rental yield versus the 5% rental yield, we pay tax as we go on this extra positive cash flow when it gets to paying positive cash flow. So that's going to reduce what we get in hand. The more tax effective way is to receive it in growth that won't be taxed unless we sell down the track. And if it is taxed down the track, you'll pay 50% because you've held it more than a year when you pay your capital gains tax and you may not have an income at all at the time. So the actual rate, your income tax rate that it's taxed on could be much lower too. That's why it's preferential where possible to take your gains via capital, gro capital growth, via capital gains and paying capital gains tax rather than as income and paying income tax. I hope that hasn't hurt your head too much. However, now this is come, comes back to where I started with having your plan. If your strategy is for positive cash flow sooner, then buying the higher cash flow property would make more sense too. And if it makes the difference in your ability to hold the property longer because the extra cash flow helps you do that, then versus selling it because you can't afford to hold it and getting out and not experiencing that compound growth over over time, that's what's really going to make the difference to you. So if you know where your budget sits, what your cash flow is like, and having the extra cash flow is going to mean a lot to you, again, relating back to your plan, then you do perhaps go the extra rental yield with an extra um, greater building component. And if you were going to go for option A and B and cash flow suited you and that you wanted that overgrowth, then personally, if I'm going to build something, take the risk on building something, wait the time for it, have no holding income along the way, I want to receive at least a 10% return for a single build in order to warrant that risk and wait that time. So I'd be going the established option if I had to choose between the two of them. I wouldn't still be building unless there's a margin and a return for doing it. The sh Having a shiny object and lesser maintenance to me is not enough of a, a reason to do it. And having higher depreciation, not enough of a reason to do that, do it for me. But again, maybe it fits with your plan. And preferably, if I was going to build, you know, more than two, not just a single house, I'd be looking for at least a fifteen percent return to warrant that extra risk and the extra effort and the lack of cash flow along the way. So I hope that answers your question. I know I went deep into the rabbit hole there, but I really didn't want to just give a simple answer because I think it takes away the thinking and the chance for you to create an overall plan. And we do have our strategic planning service, which I'm really excited about. It's getting some great results for people, giving them clarity. So 
get in touch through our investing page if you want to look at um, a strategic portfolio plan for you. Next question. Hello, new to property investing. How do we get annual growth reports of a suburb in Perth for the last 10 years? What resource has helped you get these figures? When you count the yield, do you deduct the strata and other expenses? Now, I'll answer the last part of that question first. Of course, you can't, when you're trying to compare an apple with an apple, you've got to take off the particular strata fees and look at the count, whatever the council and water rates are and, and reduce all of that down to looking at a net rental return. If, if you're really getting down to calculating these things and that's important to you, then yes, you would want to look at the yield as a net yield, not a gross yield, especially in the case of a strata property because the strata fees can vary hugely and you may find it takes you from being positive cash flow to negative cash flow very quickly depending on what those are. Second part to the question, where do we find growth reports? Uh, and he's asking for 10-year data. So some of the different places you can check out data that I've found to be most helpful is rewa.com, R-E-I-W-A.com. Go to the Insights tab and click on Suburb and Regional Profiles. Now, this is a fabulous area. There's lots of handy data there, and you can click on Trend and see the 10-year changes in median house price. Other sections of the data show growth rates for sale prices for rentals and, and sale prices, sorry. It shows the growth rates in the median house price and in the changes in rents. And this is good for seeing what the suburbs recently done. Also, you can see some demographic data and other things as to who kind of makes up the suburb, get a feel for the suburb. You know, this is good for looking at what a suburb's done in the short, short to recent term. However, what you really need to look at is 20 years and preferably 30 years of data, in my opinion, in order to capture growth from as many cycles as possible. In the 10 years to 2021, Perth was relatively flat, as was Adelaide and Brisbane. And in the couple of years since 2021, Adelaide and Brisbane have had big surges and it's Perth's turn to increase in price. So only some of the suburbs in Perth have had the big jumps and are going to reflect well in the 10-year data. We didn't do too much from over the last 10 years to 2021. So looking at that data is going to be very deceptive and certainly not the basis upon which you should be choosing properties. Because if you find properties, suburbs that have grown well in the 10-year data now, then you're probably looking at higher-end suburbs that have grown early in the cycle. And you're not capturing, you know, two cycles, three cycles to be able to look back and see over the long term how a suburb's gone. And they tend to even out in value if the underlying factors are still present that drives desirability in those suburbs with the schools still being good and, you know, amenities good and close to the beach or rivers and close to the city. Those things are going to continue to drive the suburb ongoingly. So that gives me confidence that it's going to continue. So is the data are available publicly anywhere for 20 to 30 years, I hear you asking. Well, you can go to corelogic.com.au and go to their news and research section and go to suburb reports and you can get a lot of similar data to Rewa here for free. 
However, you do need to upgrade to their premium subscription to see growth rates and house prices over longer periods. And I've got the full subscription for real estate agents and I have access to 20-year data, which is longer than what is available on the REBA website. And the challenge is that CoreLogic, you know, can, you can only look up individual suburbs. You can't export it all and sort and filter it. And it makes it very difficult to go about selecting at a given price point if you're trying to choose. And of course, if you could get access to longer data than 20 years, that would be preferential too. And that's why I had a special research project commissioned by Rewa. I it's, It was only available because I'm a real estate agent and member, and I had it specially commissioned because I knew the president of Rewa, and I managed to have the data prepared as far back as was accurate, which was 30 years. And it came as an export in a spreadsheet, and it's what I use as the basis for long-term suburb selection for both our buyer's agency that we're running and the buyer's info packs. Both those services are very dependent on suburb selection on the long-term component being from these. So see link in the show notes to the investing section of our website if you do want to chat with us about helping you with either our buyer's info pack, which helps you do it yourself, or our buyer's agency, which is a lot more involved than just just um, using this data, but where we can actually help you find, negotiate, and secure a property using our trifecta criteria and all of our research combining both the short-term and the long-term. So we're talking long-term data here. In case you are wondering, can't just blindly use this data. You need to combine it with real-world experience to know if the factors that contributed to this historical growth still remain and are likely to continue. And where a suburb has had lots of supply open up of land directly in the suburb or next to it has a big impact on the likelihood of that you know, supply versus demand growth dynamic continuing. So many suburbs that were tightly held the supply in the past aren't necessarily today and that's why you can't just go blindly out buying them because the history says they performed well and quite a few other suburbs had a government-run regeneration as was the case for quite a few of the public housing suburbs that were littered with predominantly public housing these types of of things are going to negatively affect my outlook because they're not likely to continue at the same pace so i tend to stay out of those areas that either have high land supply coming on or surround immediately surrounding or that had a government-run regeneration in the past. There's not too many suburbs in the last category, but certainly not worth including. Now, in my methodology for making the most optimum selection, I also look at the likelihood for short-term growth. So we've spoken about getting as longer-term data as you can, preferably minimum 20 years. Ideally, you know, we've got access to 30 years, get access via our buyer's info pack if you're doing it yourself, buyer's agency, but use it. But in my methodology, you also need to look at the likelihood for short-term growth because you want to buy a property, get that surge over the first few years, hopefully get your 10, your 20% increase, and then you can refinance, pull that deposit out that you had in there and use that to acquire another property again that you can get working for you. So There's some really great research platforms around like Suburbs Finder and HTAG. 
that can help you determine the likelihood of growth in the shorter term. There's also Terry Ryder's hot spotting. So these are good for determining short-term growth potential and increasing your chances. You can use the underlying trends to look at and verify as well that all the factors are present for short-term growth. So in summary, I overlay 30-year growth data, short-term predictions, manual trend analysis, and on-the-ground knowledge to create our recommended suburbs, which forms the first part of our trifecta criteria being the suburb selection. And then you still have the area and the property criteria to go through to ensure the best chance of outperforming the market. That's some insight into how I look at it and how, and hopefully that'll help your property selection when you come to it. Next question. We have tenants who have broken lease, which is fine, and they're electing to advertise our property themselves to save money. Is this normal? I know it's a tight rental market, so I don't think we will have trouble getting new tenants, but are we a bit sceptical about this? Thanks. Yeah, we should be a bit (laughs) sceptical. She wrote a little update here as well saying our PM agreed that it's best to go through them but said the tenants have a choice not to and this is what they've chosen. The tenants are also conducting their own inspections. So my answer to this is that it's certainly not normal and in 15 years I've never had it happen with one of our rental properties that we manage that I'm aware of. But in this digital age with so much demand from tenants it may happen more often so I thought I'd cover it. I suggest that you still keep control of the situation and the quality of tenant you're finding by getting your property manager to still screen any tenants they, the other tenants wish to award a replacement lease to. Now, they, your property manager can also create the lease, manage the bond lodgement, etc., and you know set the new tenant all up to come in and replace the other one. And we'd normally typically charge half our letting fee in the past. But this type of service, when we weren't having to advertise and show a property, and we'd normally be doing that in the situation that a landlord, one of our clients, had a tenant that they were providing to us that they wanted to lease the property and we didn't have to go out to the market and lease it and advertise it and show it. We just have to do the second half of things. So that's why we felt... A half charge was fair and hopefully that's still going to ensure that you're qualifying and screening the tenant really deeply and you have the final say on things. And if you're not getting the quality, then you can at least feed that back to the current tenant and maybe they might see sense in um, getting your property manager advertised in all the normal portals because what we find as well is that all the... A lot of the uh, subpar and tenants that are private, that rent through private owners and have, you know, difficult and patchy rental histories, they're the ones that go and try and rent through Facebook. They're the ones that go and try and rent through other private landlords because they know that through a private landlord, they're often not going to do the kind of checks that we do as property managers. And that's why, you know, we also can't get a ledger from a private landlord, you know, often too. And so it's far better to choose your tenants through mainstream channels that come from ideally having a rental history that is through another property manager. So all these things can be verified and you usually just don't find that 
in the tenants that are applying through Facebook and Gumtree and other places that your tenants are likely advertising this on. Next question. Thoughts on Byford. I'm looking at building an investment property in Byford with either Celebration Homes or Blueprint Homes. Thanks for your feedback. Now, I relate this back to what is your overall plan? Both of these builders are excellent and I've personally used Blueprint Homes before and found them fabulous. However, you only need to pull up a map to see how much land there is still around Byford to be released over the next decade. We're at the point in the market where most available land was sold with the building grants and most people have gone off building. So the cost of new is still much higher than established. And I would ask why build, especially if you're not making a margin by doing so. Partly answered that in the question above earlier. While there is this imbalance, existing properties in areas like Byford will experience some growth in the short term. Think about it. If someone can go and buy an established property versus buying new and buy it at the moment, if the established property is ready to move into, it's significantly cheaper. Uh, there's very little land supply for people to build if they wanted to. They don't want to take the risk on building at the moment. That's what's going to still push prices up in areas like Byford in the shorter term. But then I think over the medium to longer term, there's going to be a lot more supply that keeps coming on, which is only, in my opinion, going to keep prices suppressed over the long term. And I think for the kind of budgets that you're going to have to spend for a new property out there, I think you can do better. Hope that helps. Next question. The rental cap will likely be implemented in the eastern states. And I believe they're certainly progressing things at the moment. And most likely in WA will follow. Would you sell or hold? I really wanted to go into this because... It's from our resident bear who loves to be pessimistic on all things and find reasons not to do anything at any time. And you miss a lot of opportunities that way because there's always something negative on the horizon that you can focus on. It's hard to pick the tops. It's hard to pick the bottoms of markets. And you can get easily rattled by whatever's running the news cycle at the time. Increasing interest rates, global different things occurring. There's always something. And at the moment, this person's concerned about there being a rental cap and is that going to make you want to sell or hold your property? And what is a rental cap? Well, another word for that is freezing rents and not allowing things to be increased or putting a cap on how much the, the increase might be. Now, we all saw what happened last time in Queensland. It when they started tinkering with the land tax for out-of-state investors. Queensland government got crucified and it hurt their property market considerably. Maybe you didn't see what happened, but they were basically looking to increase land tax for out-of-state property investors. It didn't go ahead and got repealed before it even um, got passed, or the laws even got passed. So any such change is only likely going to make investment less enticing to the masses they start you know freezing making a complete freeze on rents or a cap on the amount that you can increase and further if it's going to be less investing less enticing to the masses that's going to further impact how many rental properties are being bought and added to the supply here in perth and around the country wherever they do this and as it stands at the moment more investors 
here in Perth are actually selling their investment properties than they are buying. Many have wanted to get out of the properties for the last five to 10 years. They've had their various reasons to sell. They haven't been able to. So there's this pent up bunch of sellers that currently own investment properties that are getting out. And our supply of rentals is decreasing overall now because of this. Same time is is that we're so popular with migrants and we're significantly increasing the population growth that's coming in. And migrants normally rent before they buy. So it's putting immense pressure on the rental market. And that's why vacancy rates are so low and tenants are crying out. And they should be. They've got every reason to be concerned. So, however, with most capital cities having a rental crisis and the lowest vacancy rates on record, with many people, they're having to house share. They're having to couch surf. They're being borderline homeless. Some of them are homeless. This is, this is a major problem. And with inflation being high and the cost of everything going up, the politicians are likely to have many of these desperate people crying out and pressuring them for change. So they're trying to do something, right? I understand why they're compelled to try to look at freezes or caps or you know other changes. So in the short term, a vote winner might be, for instance, only allowing one increase in rent every year instead of every six months. In Perth, at the moment, we can increase every six months. Queensland's just made it so you can only increase once a year. Something like that might come through. Is that the end of the world? No, it's not. It just means you, can, you can't increase as frequently. Tenants have a you know, more clear set rent over a, a whole year period. Is that going to def- change and stop rental prices from increasing? No, it's not. It's just going to pent up further demand. And you know, in a year's time when leases come to an end, if the problem underlying is not solved and there's not more rentals, and this does deter some investors from buying, then it's only going to push that rent up further when they increase. Now, the politician says, I've got another solution. Not only can you not increase once a year, maybe we'll cap the increase. Maybe we'll cap it at 10%. I don't know what they might do. But if they did cap it to, say, 10% in a year, that's still going to be workable for most of us as property investors. But again, if it puts people off, every time an outside control is put on market, it'll have unintended consequences. And if less investors are then interested in buying, it might be easier to go in the market and buy a property at that time if, if it puts others off. It's only going to further decrease the supply of rentals, making the rental crisis worse until the governments then need to step in. And what are they going to do then? How do you make a rental crisis better? You need more supply of houses and more supply of rentals. If you want more supply of rentals and things get that bad, they're going to have to step back in. They might cancel some of these policies. They might incentivize investors by reducing stamp duty or making lending easier. So as a long-term investor, regardless of what's done, I won't be making any rash decisions, nor would it delay me making a purchase and implementing my plan. Same goes for any policy change they can dream up, including any changes to the Residential Tenancies Act to negative gearing, to capital gains tax. All of these things, once they come in, may not stay for long. They will likely have unintended consequences. And is it really going to fundamentally affect my long-term returns? That's when I would weigh up whether or not I'm going to sell out of something. But no, in this case, these things are not, I don't believe.
And in the case of Queensland and their proposed land tax changes, if I'd sold up my property over there, only to later have them scrapped and not going ahead, I would have unnecessarily lost good money on selling and buying fees to get back in somewhere else. So hang on for the ride is what I'm saying. Don't get too bent out of shape with any of these proposed changes. And what the government should be looking at is solving the underlying supply of rentals, not polishing up the problem by proposing either caps on rental increases or only one increase per year. All of this is not going to help tenants. It's not going to incentivize investors. And hopefully Mark McGowan's a lot smarter than the Queensland Premier when it comes to these things. That's all for this episode. I hope you've got some nuggets out of that. If you're not a member of the Perth Property Investment Facebook group, head on over, post your questions, help others with theirs, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. Just a reminder, the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature. As we don't know your specific situation, you should always seek professional advice before taking any action. For free market reports on your suburb of interest and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, Make sure you join my property investor update at investorshedge.com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group. To be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. I'll see you in the group. (laughs) 